Welcome to episode 32 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey and I'm none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf and I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. So this podcast is going live on Easter Sunday when lockdown is starting to ease, the clocks have gone forward and we've had some glorious sunshine. All we need now to celebrate Easter and the arrival of spring is a bit of music. Now, anyone who listens to this podcast will know that we love a bit of singing and believe it's hugely in its ability to cheer us all up. Charlotte actually joined the self-isolation choir last Christmas because she was so lonely. (laughs) Very little persuasion after its musical director, Ben England, was on our podcast. Earlier last year, we had Tessa Marchington, my old singing teacher and the mastermind of music in offices, as our guest as well. So I'm delighted to see that actually music in offices is one of the choral partners in Messiah Reimagined, which is part of the London Handel Festival. And that's taking place on Easter Monday at 7pm in St George's Church, Hanover Square, which is actually where Handel himself used to worship. Yes, and it promises to be absolutely joyous as it's going to be live streamed all over the world for free. Now, the London Handel Festival has been going since the 70s, but sadly last year, about two thirds of the 40 planned events had to be cancelled because of COVID. But for all Handel or Messiah enthusiasts, probably most people who listen to this podcast, the festival is up and running again. And here to tell us all about it is the festival director himself, Samir Savant. Good morning, Samir. Good morning, Charlotte. Good morning, Ed. Good morning. Now, what's made this Easter Monday Messiah Imagine concert so special is that it's made up not just of the London Handel Orchestra and soloists, but pre-recorded choruses from choirs in the UK and around the world, as well as a specially assembled sing-at-home chorus. So, Samir, start by telling us all about that. Yes, well, I mean, traditionally, the London Handel Festival, it's an annual festival. Our base is St George's Hanover Square, which, as Ed pointed out, is Handel's own church. And every first Thursday of December, we do a messiah, a traditional messiah, you know, with the chorus and the orchestra and the soloists all in the church. And that tradition has been going for years. Um, So... Last July, when you know when lockdown was firmly embedded and you know our lives had changed forever, I was thinking, what what do I do? I'm a singer myself, and I had taken part in a few virtual choirs by that point, and I thought of turning the constraint into a virtue. And we, I thought we could probably fit the orchestra and the soloists safely distanced in the church, but we, there's no way we could fit the chorus in as well. So I thought, you know, we turn this thing on its head and actually invite choruses to come and join us. And uh, last year, the inaugural presentation of Messiah Imagine was on the 3rd of December and we had half a dozen or so choral partners. Um, I'm thrilled that we're doing it all again on Easter Monday. Messiah is of course an Easter piece although it's more traditionally performed at Christmas Uh, and this time we've doubled the number of choral partners. We've actually got 15 uh, from around the world, five in North America, one in Germany, the rest from across the UK including music and offices Uh, and this wonderful all comers choir um, who've all submitted all their recordings and there's 180 singers from across five continents so it's a wonderfully international way of bringing the world together through music that's a brilliant point about the international flavor because i mean we tend to think of handel as a great english composer although obviously uh he wasn't english originally but is his music popular all around the world do americans and germans clearly like handel but uh would you find him popular in japan or other places 
Absolutely. Well, well. I mean, if if uh, your uh, listeners go, that you can still listen to the third of December stream. It's on our YouTube channel. You just have to search London Handle Festival on YouTube, and it's there. We had over a thousand comments from all the major English-speaking countries, as you'd imagine. So America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and pretty much all of Europe. But it was astonishing that this was live streamed, and the next day I woke up and there was a whole load of the people in the Philippines watching it. Uh, <laughs> Brilliant. People in, you know, India, Uzbekistan, Russia, South Africa. I mean, people were just piling in and appreciating, uh, showing their appreciation of this amazing piece. So I think it really does have global appeal. What about other of Handel's music, though? Um, well, Handel, of course, wrote uh, the four coronation anthems for the coronation of George II. Uh, Handel was brought over to London. You know, he was employed by the Hanoverians and his first royal employer was George I, whom he'd worked for in Hanover already. Uh, and he'd worked for Queen Anne. And Zadok the priest has been performed at every coronation since. And it's interesting you say, Ed, about whether Handel was in British or, uh, or German. Um, obviously, he was born in Germany, but he was so proud of being British, he changed his name from Georg Friedrich Handel. He took the omelette off and became very anglicised, George Frederick Handel. And he was naturalised by Act of Parliament, in advance of writing these coronation anthems. And uh, this might tickle you, Ed. If you go to the House of Lords on a tour, as I've done, they bring out the Handel naturalization document. I think he's probably the most famous person to have been naturalized in history. No way. I'm, go I'm going to go and ask for the Handel naturalization document when they. It took House an of Lords act of Parliament. You know, I, I wasn't born in this country, I was naturalized, but I just had to fill in a few forms and, and, and pay my money, and off I went. You also had to take that fiendish test about how many beef eaters there are on the Tower of London and things. Absolutely. Well, I, I was 15 at the time, so I think they let me off. But, um, but no, I didn't have an act of parliament, certainly. So what else have you got planned for the festival this year? Well, the festival, um, as you rightly said at the beginning, Charlotte, um, normally we have 40 events in a range of venues across London that have an association with Handel and indeed Baroque music. So one venue we use quite a lot is very near the Houses of Parliament. It's that beautiful Queen Anne era um, church, St. John Smith Square. And, you know, we uh, the last actual concert we had in the 2020 festival before it was all cancelled was in the picture gallery at the Foundling Museum. And obviously Handel oh, was the yes. governor at the Foundling. He wrote music specifically to benefit the Foundling orphans, including bequeathing, uh, he wrote the Foundling anthem, which famously ends with the Hallelujah Chorus, which he'd nicked from Messiah, of course. And he did massive fundraising concerts of Messiah. Um, so he was very much the Bob Geldof of his day. You know, he, he'd coined this concept of a fundraising concert, you know, centuries before it became a thing in the 1980s. And, you know, it was heartbreaking to have to cancel. Luckily, we did have quite a lot of the festival. We had a run of the Oratorio Susanna, a staged version in the Lindbury Theatre at the Royal Opera House, which is part of our ongoing partnership with them. We had uh, Handel's Serenata, written for the Princess Royal, Parnasso in Festa, for the Princess Royal's wedding to the Prince of Orange. And that was at the Wigmore Hall, and that went ahead. But pretty much everything else in the in the festival, including the final of our International Handel Singing Competition, had to be cancelled or postponed. We eventually had the final of the competition, actually the day before our last Messiah reimagined. And this year, the only event we can do, you know, according to current guidelines, is this Messiah reimagined, because all the musicians are separated in the church, but there's no audience. It's behind closed doors. And we're 
live streaming it. So I'm I'm grateful for the the technology to be able to um to to deliver this to an audience of of you know thousands and thousands. Um, and I think the one good thing that has come out good that has come out of this horrible situation is that performing artists are relishing and seizing opportunities to reach new and international audiences through the miracle of technology. Going forward, I- I- imagining a world where we're not in a pandemic has what you've experienced kind of changed the way you're thinking about how to do the handle festival in the future engaging with the philippines for example i'd be stupid not to carry on with this project it's been amazing <laughs> for us uh, and we've already got a december performance planned i, I unfortunately the, the, it's not 100 the details aren't confirmed it will happen but i can't broadcast on this the de- the, the actual date and venue but it's very exciting what we're doing and we will welcome another sing at home chorus so any of your listeners that want to take part themselves next time you know you you get downloadable rehearsals with Lawrence Cummings our musical director who's one of the foremost Handelian conductors of his generation and a fantastic uh, chorus master and of course I want to I want to reach choirs in uh, in Asia and in Africa, where we haven't you know we haven't reached choirs yet. So if there are any choral directors that are listening in who have who are running choirs uh, in you know in Asia and Africa and that want to be part of this thing next time, please do get in touch via our website. In general, we're planning to do you know a mini festival in October and have as many concerts as we can both. Um, logistically and financially. And we will, I think most performing arts organisations will be moving to a hybrid model where we will have live performance, of course, because it's never the same watching something on a screen as being in the same space as the performer and the other members of the audience. Um, but we will live try and live stream as much as we can because we've just realised that there's just a, a huge appetite for Handel out there. And we're the only people consistently performing Handel in his own church. I mean, I'm somebody, I go every... Christmas, I trot off to St John Smith Square and do the Messiah. But I'm thank- I'm really grateful to you for reminding me that it's an Easter thing. I think that's absolutely joyous. Part one is all about Christmas, the birth of Christ. But parts two and three are all about, you know, the crucifixion and the resurrection. So there's only really a third of it that's concerned with Christmas. But over the decades, I mean, this is to your point about the internationalism of Messiah as well. I mean, what we're trying to uncover is the history of Messiah being performed in different countries and there's a huge tradition of singing Messiah in Spain, for example, where they don't even have English as their first language. You know, one, one would understand in English speaking countries or in Germany where Handel was from. But, you, you're, um, and, you know, huge appetite for Handel in um, Japan as well. So, you know, it, it's, it's the history of what happened to the piece after Handel died as well that's just as important. And the fact that this piece has been performed consistently across the world every single year from the you know 1742 when it was first uh, written and premiered in Dublin right through to 2021 I love it it's a story that just continues to inspire me every day I don't know what the global reach of our podcast is I mean I know it's global <laughs> I think we've reached huge haven't we, ha- haven't we had fan mail from Ecuador or somewhere we had somewhere from South America <laughs> Peru, Peru. Peru. Is it? if I was obviously important I would I would write to every I'd be the foreign secretary I'd write to every ambassador and say get your head round handle because they always do something for the Queen's birthday they normally trot out an Aston Martin but I think you know handle from Sire at Easter every ambassador around the world gets it performed in their gardens of their lavish embassy. That's, yes, that's a Marvelous. brilliant I idea. I love that idea. Global Britain. Right, Samir, you have your work cut out. <laughs> <laughs>
Indeed. We're, we're only, a, by, by the way, we're only a tiny festival in terms of staffing and resource, but a, a massive global ambition. Be, believe you, <laughs> believe it or not, there's just me and my assistant running this entire thing with an incredibly committed and capable board of trustees and an army of volunteers. But in terms of paid full-time members of staff, there's just two of us. So I'll probably need to dele- delegate your wonderful project out to a volunteer, Ed. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, well, thanks so much. I really enjoyed that. That's fascinating insight. Yeah, and I agree. it's so nice that there's something out there for lonely Charlotte as well. So <laughs> very, very important. Thank you so much, Samir. Good luck with it. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Now, still on an uplifting spring theme, there's a very exciting new exhibition coming to Kensington Gardens this summer. It's going to be a great family day out. It's not opening till June, but we wanted to alert you now as tickets are being snapped up fast already. I'm talking, of course, about Van Gogh Alive, an amazing immersive show that's already welcomed 7 million visitors in 65 cities around the world. It featured in my favorite cultural event of the year, Emily in Paris on Netflix, (laughs) and it had its most recent sellout run in Sydney, Australia. I knew you'd mentioned Emily in Paris. You love Emily in Paris. Uh, yes. Now, uh, Van Gogh Alive is apparently the most visited multi-century experience in the world. It's been such a success, it's already spawned quite a few imitators, but I'm assured this is the real McCoy that's been around 10 years, but never yet been to London. It did open briefly at the Birmingham Hippodrome last October, before November lockdown, but few people in England have had a chance to see it before. So here to tell us all about it is one of the event's organisers, Ali Foster. Hello, Ali. Hey, guys. How's it going? Very well. It's obviously going to be hugely popular. It's right next to the Albert Memorial, so very central location. There hasn't been an event there since British Fashion Week in 2016. So tell our listeners what they can expect. I gather you don't need any kind of special kit like VR goggles or anything. No, you just need to turn up with a you know with an open mind and you know be ready to be in the in the life and works of, of Vincent van Gogh. London for us is a hugely exciting opportunity um, for Van Gogh Alive. By summer, very much hoping that, you know, restrictions will be, you know, lifted or at least partially lifted. You know, Van Gogh Alive, one of the beauty beauties of it is that it can operate effectively and successfully within a COVID safe environment. But it's the perfect way to, 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 to reawaken the senses after a difficult winter, you know, get together with friends and family and just have a really world-class cultural experience in the heart of one of London's most beautiful rural parks. It's in a big structure, isn't it? I mean, t- and tell our listeners a bit more about what they literally can expect, you know, with the kind of things they're going to see and be able to do. It's a 25,000 square foot structure, which I, I I haven't seen anything like it in, in the past. And I still quite, can't quite get my head behind how big it's going to be. Um, in the actual immersive area of the experience, it's the, 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 the ceiling height is 10 metres, which, you know, when you think when you stand on top of a five metre diving board, it's quite... <laughs> It feels like quite a high way out. So this is double that. So it's going to be vast. Um, so you won't miss it if you're if you're anywhere near Hyde Park or Kensington Gardens. So so yeah, in terms of the experience itself, um, it, you know the, the the main element of the experience is the main immersive gallery, which we like to call it, um, which is powered by sensory four technology, and that really is um, just a feast for the senses. Essentially, from the moment you walk in, it's set to a beautiful classical score. Um, there's also scent technology. The smells of Provence are put into the uh, to the atmosphere, and then also you're kind of surrounded by this you know just you know kind of 
imagery of Van Gogh's works and you're taken on a real journey through his life that really is quite moving and you know people have been known to kind of you know start crying once they're in there and kind of really you know really moves people so it is an amazing experience and that's why I really feel that kind of post-COVID everyone's in need of cheering up and you know to have some you know that kind of uplifting cultural experience and then finally to to kind of um, complete the experience we were going to have an amazing kind of Cafe, uh, Cafe de Provence is what we're calling it, delivered by Benugo. And it's, you know, going to be serving a delicious array of food and beverage all overlooking Kensington Gardens and the Royal Albert Hall. So a brilliant way to um, to cap off uh, what, what should be a fantastic day. Well, I mean, it sounds absolutely fab and brilliant. And we're great believers on this podcast of the healing part of the arts and their ability to you know, cheer us all up. And I gather you've partnered with three charities, including Shout 85258. Can you tell us a bit more about that one? The Shout is a mental health text messaging based charity, um, kind of p- primarily kind of servicing the millennial audience um you know with the kind of mental health struggles is, is well documented within that demographic um and it's been proven that the kind of children and teenagers of that age and young adults are just sometimes more comfortable in that kind of digital environment where they can text through their you know their their, their thoughts and anxieties and have a trained trained professional on the other end of that of that text messaging conversation so i think it's a really great fit it's a great opportunity for them it's actually aligned to the royal heads together mental health collection of charities um, which is obviously kind of spearheaded by um, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. The experience is obviously in their back garden. So there's a really nice synergy there. And obviously the kind of the narrative around Van Gogh himself and the, you know, the mental mental health issues that are well documented with his life is a, is a you know, a, a, another kind of um, storytelling opportunity for that charity, really. And just a, an opportunity for us to kind of raise awareness of that mental health conversation, particularly at the moment when, you know, so many of us are, are struggling with various degrees of anxiety depression and, and and all of the rest of it following the really you know tough year we've all had mm. Brilliant. i think you're going to do a lot with schools as well aren't you so yeah we're going to be you know reaching out to local schools in the area and particularly disadvantaged schools as well to ensure that you know school children of all backgrounds have the opportunity to experience this um, and we have a kind of dedicated education team who kind of go out into the community and make sure we get as many children through the experience as we can um, but also follow up with them with kind of engagement and you know art challenges and competitions and stuff like that so it's a big part of uh, of, of the proposition and yeah it's always rewarding to see to see the children come through it has that extra special a kind of wow factor um for them but i think you know one of the one of the great things about this is it is so inclusive you know it appeals from from children and toddlers right the way through to you know retirees who typically go to west end shows and that's obviously not going to be on the cards for a little while yet so it really does appeal and that's part of the reason it's it's had so much success globally the vasey family is going to be there in spades but remind us uh it'll be on our website but just remind everyone the dates that it's on and the cost of a ticket Sure. So um, the doors open on June the 4th. And that is we, the day before my birthday. That there you go. So, oh, there you that, go. That's uncanny. You can buy tickets by going to um, www.vangoffaliveuk.com. And tickets start from, for an adult, they start from £24. Um, concessions are available. Um, and children, child tickets start from £14 as well. So um, Very reasonable. Cheaper oh, than yeah. a West End ticket. We think so. And it's also worth noting there is a kind of a, another immersive Van Gogh experience that's also in London this year, which is a kind of, you know, a, a separate experience organized by a different um company and that's not opening until november time so it's just important there's a there's a small amount of confusion in the market we just want to make it clear that we are van gogh alive we're in kensington gardens and we don't want anyone booking tickets to the wrong show by mistake thank you so much ali i i think it sounds amazing i'm really looking forward to it 
Our final guest this week is Ben Fenton, who's been a newspaper reporter for 30 years, covering wars, elections, Olympic Games, presidential elections, disasters, injustices and triumphs in over 40 countries. What that taught him was that a sense of fair play might be the ultimate answer to our troubled, conflicted, unharmonious world. So now he's written a book and it's already being hailed as an essential intervention and the right book at the right time. Satnam Sangera, who's been a recent guest on this podcast, says it's asking the most important question of our time. How can we recover our ability to talk to each other? I'm delighted that Ben's with us today. Hello, Ben. Hi, Ed. Hi, Ben. And I love the title of this book, which is, to be fair, because I live in a very argumentative household with two daughters who hold extremely strong views. And apparently one of the things I say most is to be fair. So it's a brilliant title as so many people can relate to it. So can you start by telling our listeners how you first became so convinced that the answer to life is a sense of fairness? Uh, Well, it's a really prosaic answer in a way, because I was learning the laws of cricket for a job interview at Lord's. And I realised that law 42 of cricket was fair and unfair play. And I also, being a fan of Douglas Adams, knew that he had chosen the number 42 as the ultimate answer to life, the universe and everything. And so I kind of thought, I wonder if he chose that for that reason, because he was a fan of cricket. But then after a while, I actually began to discover things that suggested that he might not have chosen it for that reason, partly that they've actually changed the numbering of the laws since he wrote the book. (laughs) (laughs) But I also then thought it doesn't really matter because if you were looking for an ultimate answer to all of the problems of life, the universe and everything, I couldn't think of a better place to start than the idea that we should try to treat each other as fairly as possible. But I'm slightly spooked out by the number 42 because you also point out that the ancient Egyptians asked 42 questions to check whether you were allowed into a desirable afterlife. I mean, there's something going on with this number. It, there is, actually. The code of life that the Egyptians lived by was called Mart. And as you say, there were 42 questions that your soul had to answer when you appro- approached the sort of their equivalent of the River Styx to pass into the afterlife. And uh, so those questions essentially became a guide for how you lived your life because they were to show that you'd been a decent person, that you had behaved well within the the order of Egyptian society. So yeah, the very, very first real guide to life had this number 42 at the heart of it. And Jackie Robinson, the great baseball player, played with the number 42. Absolutely. Before he even knew, before... Before he'd read my book, yeah. The only time that professional baseball ever retired a, a number... Uh, on the back of, uh, of, of of their shirts, which which clubs used to do or still do. Uh, but the only time it's ever been done right across all of the teams in professional baseball was for Jackie Robinson, the first black man to play for uh, a professional side in American baseball, a man who broke down the barriers of unfairness that kept non-white players out of the sport. So nobody now will wear the number 42 playing professional baseball except on one day of the year when every single player in American baseball plays with the number 42 on their back. The more I discovered, uh, more I read into the questions, uh, the history of fairness and so on and so forth, I found all these places where the number 42 cropped up. So, for instance, Gutenberg's Bible, one of the seminal works of modern civilization, was also known as the 42-line Bible. And um, the work of 
probably the greatest political philosopher of the Middle Ages who preempted the work of Machiavelli and laid the guidelines for how secular societies live together. So a man who you could say really wrote the first rules of fairness for society in, in, in Europe, in, in the West, a man called Marsilius of Padua, his most famous book, The Defensor Parkes, The Defender of the Peace, is also known as The 42 Propositions. Wow. But can I, can I just ask you that, you know, the first very basic question that I think our listeners would like to hear answering, what is your definition of fair play, Ben? It's a really good question and it could take a very long time to answer, but I'll try <laughs> to be brief. So I try to answer this question actually by saying what fairness isn't. So fairness is not the same as justice because justice is a vertical uh, process of handing down laws and making sure people uh, uh, abide by them. Um, fairness is not the same as equality because what is equal is not always fair and what is fair is not always equal. Fairness is not, in my view, uh, the phrase uh, equivalent to the phrase the level playing field because in my view you don't need to have a level playing field in sport. All you need to do is change ends at half time. So Fairness is more than all of these things, but it's all of those things as well. Um, and interestingly, English is actually the only major language which has a word which is only translatable as fair. So French, for instance, it's translated as juste or justice, which also obviously means just or justice. In German, they tend to use gerecht, which is righteous or right, correct or whatever. And it's the same in Spanish, the same in Italian. English is the only word a language in the world that has the word fair now i'm not suggesting and i would never suggest that that means that brits or english speakers are the only people who ever think about fairness because we don't i don't think there's any great significance to this particularly but it is interesting that it's a concept that, that is only defined in in our language i think it's absolutely fascinating and and what i think so interesting about your book is that you've said that without fairness a sense of fairness um we all start competing more and collaborating less. Yes, yeah, so I suppose the sort of central thesis of my book, and I don't claim any originality to this, this, this has been said by others, but in quite obscure places really, is that there are two really fundamental drives to homo sapiens, to what makes us as a species, the dominant species, the most successful species the world has ever had, for good or ill. And those two drives are competition, which is common to most species, and cooperation, which is much less common in species. The fact that we have been able to coordinate these two drives, harness them together, if you like, has given us that additional power. So how do we harness these things together? Because you know, on their own, competition and cooperation just don't mesh, do they really? They don't pull together in the same direction. I think the answer to that is that it's the sense of fairness and unfairness in us innately that allows us to harness those two forces together and makes us such an extraordinarily capable and uh, potential uh, species of, of life. But you've, talk, you've talked about your book being a rant turning into a call for a social movement. I mean, do you think we can turn a corner? Well, Ed, you're a politician. How far would you have got in politics if you said you were against fairness? The key thing for our future is to decide what is fair, what we all agree is fair. And fairness is a procedure. 
It's not an absolute position, it's a relative position. It's a procedure to discover what we as individuals agree with others are the fair terms of cooperation. We, I think, have increasingly, for two reasons, not been in a very good position to decide what we all think is fair. One is, in my view, the global financial crisis totally wrecked the concept of fairness in society because the people who caused such incredible global damage to our economy that we're all still paying for today were the one group of people who never actually paid for it themselves. Bankers, essentially. And then secondly, I think that we aren't in a good position to decide what's fair because we are very binary. We are very polarised. And I think we have been polarised by a combination of things, partly because social media has pushed us into extreme positions. And that, I'm hardly the first person to say this. But if you think about what the way in which the digital world works, it works in a binary way. It is based on binary. It is based on ones and zeros, true and false. That is how computer programs work. It's also, I suspect, the way in which the brains of people who invented social media work. So it actually benefits the system for us to be either right or wrong, true or false. And therefore, we've lost the nuance of what made human beings so successful in the first place. And that's what we have to get back. So what's the answer? I think the answer is to talk to each other more and not shout at each other. What is the common ground of, of who we are? Not what makes us different, what, not what makes us better than each other. What makes us the same? What have we got in common and we start from there? And I think just as long as you use that as the prism through which you see life, whether you're a politician, you know, a kind of unemployed ranter like me, or, <laughs> you know, or anybody, you know, it, it just makes life easier to, to cope with. The thing I'm happiest about is that I was worried that we only had 42 listeners to this podcast, but now I realise that it's um, extremely significant. It'll be 42 squared by the time I listen to this. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. My pleasure. It might not be fair, but that's all we've got time for this week. You know where to find details of everything we've talked about on countryandtownhouse.co.uk, where you'll also find our sister podcast, House Guest, which is a must-listen for anyone interested in interior design. This week, Carol Annette talks to Bergman Interiors, also known as The Rebels, Albin and Marie, who are known to do things differently from boats to boutique hotels. You can also find our Great British Brands podcast in collaboration with Michael Heyman of Changemakers. And talking of Great British Brands, our Great British Brands April newsletter is out now. I don't know about any of you, but I've not worn makeup for a year and my hair is totally out of control. So I definitely have a face for radio or podcast at the moment. That is certainly but... true. <laughs> Thank you, Ed. <laughs> but also, if you're anything like me, just sign up to our Great British Brands newsletter and I guarantee your attitude is going to change because we've picked out a fantastic array of sustainable beauty salons to go to, new makeup, hero beauty products. I need the and some gorgeous spring fragrances plus all the latest news about what our wonderful brands are doing and some fabulous prize offers this actually made me quite excited about getting faintly presentable again next thing you know ed and i'll be going for tv <laughs> go to countryandtownhouse.co.uk slash newsletter to sign up and it's not just for women 
I know you like the newsletters too, Ed. Yes, the newsletters. <laughs> you sound like you've slightly run out of steam there, Charlotte. So, so depressed at the prospect of putting makeup back on again. <laughs> I, that, that is true. Seeing whether it can do the <laughs> that trick. That is true. But it is actually true that the newsletter is, I don't know, what's the word? Pansexual. Uh, I love it. Women love it. I love it. Men love it. I'm an avid reader of it. The country and dad has newsletter every week. In fact, I'm off to read it right now. Anyway, back to the podcast. Next week, we're going to be talking to the movie director, Kevin MacDonald, who is the director of the latest Jodie Foster movie. I think it's the first movie she's been in for a decade. The Mauritanian, also with Taha Rahim, who I love as an actor. I've actually seen The Mauritanian. It's brilliant. So do tune in to our conversation with Kevin. I'll be coming straight from physiotherapy. So it'll it's going to be an interesting atmosphere. But for now, have a lovely, happy chocolate egg Easter. And if you're listening after Easter Day, we hope you had a lovely spring break. See you next week. Goodbye. 